Good morning. Please turn with your, me in your Bible to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Sadly, tyrants and despots who have demanded absolute allegiance have been all too common in world history. The first one who comes to my mind is Adolf Hitler. Refusal to salute and say, Heil Hitler, could easily lead to your death or imprisonment. Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin, and Kim Jong-un are other modern dictators who come to mind. They share the characteristic that allegiance to them and their government was to be above all else. But as the book of Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. 500 years before Christ, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was another one of those despots. Allegiance to him and his government was to be above all else. Our story in Daniel 3 this morning starts with the dedication of a statue and a simple act of required allegiance. Let's read about it in verses 1 to 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you guide our thoughts as we focus on this very familiar story. Show us how this relates to our 20th century America. Give us the boldness to follow you, regardless of the circumstances. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nebuchadnezzar decides to build a large statue in the province of Babylon. The statue will be 60 cubits high, or roughly 90 feet high, about the height of the Lincoln Memorial and six cubits wide, which is about nine feet wide. Because that would be a very narrow statue, some have suggested that the actual image stood on top of a pedestal that was part of the total 90 feet, like the Statue of Liberty is on a pedestal. This wasn't the only statue like this back then. In fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was only 18 feet higher than this. That was a 108-foot tall statue of the sun god Helios, constructed on the island of Rhodes, just off the coast of western Turkey. Nebuchadnezzar's statue was either pure gold or gold-plated. Either way, to construct such a gold statue or gold-plated statue, you would need to have one or more large furnaces to melt the gold. These ancient furnaces were often made of, of baked clay, sometimes lined with rock on the inside. Some may have had a domed roof with an opening at the top for ventilation and an opening in the front to insert and remove the gold. Archaeologists have actually discovered a well-preserved furnace or kiln in the ancient Babylonian city of Nippur, which was located only about 70 miles from Babylon. That furnace was about 14 feet long, 9 feet wide, and only about 4 feet high. Not, big, not as big as the one mentioned in Daniel 3. The temperature needed to melt gold would have had to be about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And they had the technology back in those days to get it that hot. Once the gold statue was constructed, all the satraps, 
prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of this great statue. Now, notice that verses 1 to 3 rather tediously mentions this long list of public officials twice, implying, I think, that this was something specifically required for these government officials, not necessarily for everyone in the province. Imagine a great new monument being set up in Washington, D.C., and all the members of Congress and their staff, all the Supreme Court justices and lower court judges and their staffs, all the White House staff, all the cabinet directors and bureaucrats from all the government agencies in Washington are assembled at the dedication of this new monument. That's how I imagine it to be like with the dedication of King Nebuchadnezzar's statue. So government officials, including those from nations and peoples of every language, were there. In other words, these are not just native Babylonians, but others from many captive nations who, like Daniel, had been trained for service in the Babylonian government. And by the way, the text doesn't tell us where Daniel was. He may have been sick or away on the king's business, for all we know. Anyway, a speaker then steps up to the podium, and the crowd goes silent. Starting in verse 4, the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. At that, the whole crowd gets on their knees and bows, hands outstretched and face to the ground. No one is left standing. There's no indication in the text that this was an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Babylonian kings did not generally set themselves up as gods. I think the point of this statue is that Nebuchadnezzar was demanding that his government officials demonstrate an outward show of total allegiance to him above all else. And the government officials were apparently all too willing to go along. After all, it wouldn't be patriotic to refuse to pledge allegiance, so to speak, to this representation of the kingdom. And being burned alive in the furnace was no idle threat. Beside that, in those days, everyone except Jews were polytheists, which meant that they worshipped numerous gods. Bowing down to one more statue was no big deal to them. So verse 7 says that peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Everyone bowed down. But notice that not everyone was there. Verse 6 is clear that at this event, anyone who did not bow down would immediately be thrown into the furnace, not just reported to the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego apparently knew ahead of time what this statue was for. And they also knew that the law of Moses absolutely forbid them from bowing down and worshiping any graven image. If they had been there, they would have immediately been thrown into the furnace. So they just refused the summons to attend. If they had been living in Judah, I wonder if they might have actively protested such idolatry, like many of the prophets did. For example, Elijah publicly protested the evil of King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, and the prophets of Baal. The prophet Nathan confronted King David to his face about David's sin 
But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were living in a foreign country. They apparently felt no need to make a public protest. They would just stay home and protest silently by refusing to attend. And that might have been the end of the matter. Except that some of the astrologers, in other words, some of their fellow wise men, turned them in. Maybe out of false patriotism, but probably out of jealousy and hatred. The wise men went to the king and said, in verse 12, there are some Jews whom you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They never, neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, notice that they made the attack personal. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. I think they're saying that these Jews are not patriotic. They don't support you or your kingdom. In fact, they are personally insulting and rebelling against you, your majesty. Verse 13, the king takes the bait, furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I can't help wondering if anyone tried to convince them to save themselves. It's just a statue. It's no big deal. It just bow down. You don't really even have to mean it. Just go through the motions. Besides, it's the patriotic thing to do. Everyone is doing it. Your needless rebellion, rebellion is putting all of us in danger, you know. Continuing in verse 13. Though these men were brought before the king, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, this was not just a show trial. This is the genuine investigation, and their lives are on the line. The king gives them a second chance to pledge their patriotism and allegiance to king and kingdom. If they do, all will be forgiven. But, in the middle of verse 15, comes the warning. If you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Remember back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a statue in which he was the head of gold, followed by kingdoms of silver, bronze, and iron. Some scholars have suggested that in chapter 3, he made the entire statue gold rather than just the head, as if to say, no kingdom will follow mine. My kingdom and my dynasty will last forever, and no god will destroy my kingdom, just as no god will be able to rescue the three of you from my hand. Now, I don't know if that's what Nebuchadnezzar was thinking or not, but whatever the case, he makes a statue that is gold or gold-plated from head to foot and arrogantly declares that no god is powerful enough to resist his authority. So now what? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been found out. The law of Moses commanded that they were not to bow down to any idol or graven image, and they must obey God rather than man. It's one thing to silently protest, hoping no one will notice, but now their lives were on the line. And being burned alive is a terrible way to go, as Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were to find out much later. In 1555, Ridley and Latimer were brought out of prison to have a public debate with Catholic authorities. They defended their views brilliantly, but were convicted of heresy anyway, and sentenced to be burned at the stake in Oxford, England. I saw the exact sight when I was there. Apparently, all they had to do was recant and say they didn't really believe what they believed but they would not lie and betray their conscience. So they were tied to the stake, 
Gunpowder was tied around their necks, and fire was set. Latimer was lucky and died of smoke inhalation before the flames got to him. Ridley was not so lucky. A similar crisis faced Martin Luther when he was summoned by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V to the Diet of Worms. A diet was just a formal meeting, and Worms was a city in Germany. In English, Worms is spelled with a W, so on paper it looks like a diet of worms. Anyway, Luther was summoned to a hearing and ordered to recant the views he had written in his books. Knowing full well that failure to recant could have terrible consequences, Luther is reported to have said, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Luther's story has a happier ending. He was protected by Prince Frederick in Wartburg Castle, where he spent his time translating the Bible into German. There is no doubt in my mind, however, that as they stood before their accusers, Luther, Ridley, and Latimer had thought about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. There it was, treason, and a personal affront to the king himself. We are confident that our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will not serve your gods or worship the image you've set up. Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He ordered the furnace to be heated even hotter than usual, and had the three men bound with ropes and thrown into the fire. And the king and his advisors sat by to watch them burn. But they didn't burn. Verses 24 and 25 say, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, Well, certainly, your majesty. He said, Look! I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, the King James Version says the fourth looks like the son of God. And many Christians down through the centuries have assumed that this was the pre-incarnate Jesus in the fire. But it is not likely that Nebuchadnezzar said the son of God. The original language here is Aramaic, and it doesn't say the son of God. It, it can be translated a son of the gods, which is more like what you would expect from a polytheist like Nebuchadnezzar. And besides that, in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar himself identifies this being as an angel. But regardless of what Nebuchadnezzar thought about this fourth person, it could be that God sent his angel to walk through the fire with the men, or it could be that Jesus himself was there. We will never know this side of heaven. What the text does tell us is that God sovereignly and supernaturally protected the men so that, according to verse 27, the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Fortunately, no one is throwing Americans into fiery furnaces. So what does this passage have to teach us? The first lesson is the same one we saw from chapters 1 and 2, and that is that regardless of outward appearances, the world is not spinning out of control. God can override even the most powerful of tyrants. The second lesson is a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. 
Our ultimate allegiance belongs to God alone, not government or anything else. Nothing is to come before God. We see this all the way back in the Law of Moses, where the first commandment says, You shall have no other gods before me. We see it throughout the history of Israel, in God's severe judgment against idolatry, in the times especially of the judges and kings. Jesus taught it when he said the first and greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Both Peter and Paul taught that we should obey government as much as possible, but if there should be ever a conflict, Peter stood before the governing rulers of Israel and said, we must obey God rather than man. Now, this doesn't mean we have to be belligerent about it, of course. As we saw in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel tried to compromise. In chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego apparently tried to avoid the confrontation entirely by just staying home. There are, of course, times when confrontation is the right thing to do, as we saw with the prophets like Elijah and Nathan. But either way, the important thing is that our ultimate allegiance is to God alone, not to government or anything else. If there is no door of legitimate compromise, and if avoidance of confirmation is not possible, then we must, like Martin Luther, declare, Here I stand. I can do no other. And that is exactly what some Christian bakers, and florists, photographers, counselors, and business people have had to do even here in America. A third lesson is that God is able to deliver you from any tyrant, hardship, or trial. There's always hope. In his two-volume book entitled Miracles, Craig Keener documents how God is still performing miracles around the world, making the blind see, the deaf hear, the disabled walk, removing tumors, and even in some cases, raising the dead. These miracles are like foretastes of the kingdom, like someone who gets a taste of the cookie dough even before the cookies are baked. Such miracles are foretastes of the kingdom when God will raise all his people to new resurrection bodies that never wear out, never get diseased, never suffer pain, and never die. God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from their trials. But that is not always the case. Tradition says Isaiah was sawn in two. Gospels say John the Baptist was beheaded. Jesus was crucified. James was stoned to death. Paul was beheaded. Regardless of the circumstances, our response to hardship and trials needs to be like of that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who said God can deliver us, but even if he does not. God can deliver us from COVID-19, but even if he does not, we will trust him anyway. God can deliver us from financial failure, but even if he does not, we will trust him anyway. God can deliver us from debilitating pain, but even if he does not, we will trust him anyway. God can deliver us from death, but even if he does not, we will trust him anyway. Why would we take such a stand? Why would we trust God in the midst of terrible trials? Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.19 says we love him because he first loved us. Not only that, but in Romans 8.18, Paul says the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory God has in store for his people. And John says that one day God will wipe away every tear. In the meantime, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
We are to strive to be faithful to God regardless of the circumstances. Let's pray. Lord, grant that we, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would have the kind of commitment to you that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.